You do have the whole text for you there in the bulletin, but of course, your pew Bible is also available. We'll be on page 840 and following there. And if you're bringing your own Bible, that always lets you make notes in the margins, or I've begun actually kind of doodling in my Bible. Uh, Just recently, my son, I'm going to tell a little story, he discovered uh, my great-grandmother's personal Bible, uh, which had been on the bookshelf, and I had kind of forgotten we had, and he wanted to start using it as his own Bible, and he was enamored with the age and the value of this thing, and it got me thinking, maybe someday... Now, someone will find my Bible and see my little scribbles and then figure out, oh, he was connecting this word to that word. Anyhow, if you got your own Bible with you, that's a good thing. It helps you find your way, right? You start to learn to use the tool a little more when it's yours. That said, Mark chapter 5 is where we left off last time. And Jesus had just dealt with this legion-esque demon group in this one guy on the far side of Galilee. Uh, He is sent away from there, and no one wants him around. They're afraid of him. But remember, we kind of left off. He gets sent off by Jesus into that area, and he's told to proclaim what God has done for him. And we're not really done for this area yet, and with that word, which is going to show up again a little bit later, not tonight. But Jesus gets back in the boat, and he goes across the water um, to the other side. And there again, there is just a massive crowd that is there. At this point in Mark's gospel, this has kind of got to be boring information to you. Oh, there's a crowd around Jesus, you don't say, right? Like that's the thing that's been going on this entire time, right? Uh, They're gathered, he's still beside the sea. But now in verse 22, that's when the story shifts again. And I've said this in a couple of different services, but I don't know that it's been in every service. So you may not have heard this yet. Uh, But there is a a kind of a tool you can use when reading Mark, and that is to look for the story sandwiches. Uh, Mark likes to take two stories and make a sandwich out of them. He cuts one of them in half, and that's your bread. And he takes the other one, he puts it in the middle, and that's your meat. And he does this over and over again, usually to draw parallels between the two stories And to drive you to something in the very middle, the meat, right? Uh, Which will be amplified by the taste of the bread on the outside. So that's what's happening here. We're about to have two stories that go into one. That'll take us all the way to chapter 6. And then from chapter 6, we have some kind of intermediary stuff. uh, Things that follow this set of stories that we have happened that are setting up what happens later as Jesus sends out the 12 apostles a second time. We'll look at that on Sunday. So tonight's goal then is to go through these two stories, see how they connect, and then deal with that follow-up, which is him being rejected by his hometown of Nazareth, the prophets not wanted by those who know him. Okay, so again, verse 22, out of this massive crowd, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, Mark mentioning the guy's name Jairus means that this guy was probably known somehow, some way to the readers of Mark's gospel or to the first century world, or at the very least to the Christians that were in Palestine at the time of Mark's writing, right? A lot of times when you have guys that are mentioned by name, right? He he heals a widow's son. We don't get his name, but here's Jairus because we all know Jairus, right? Except we don't, but the Christian community probably did. 
Now, one of the other things that we can kind of surmise here uh, is, you know, who is a ruler of the synagogue at this time? He's somebody who doesn't have a lot of official power. He doesn't have a sword he carries around, um, but he's sort of the most invested male in the local Jewish community in a town. Uh, and he doesn't have to be the oldest, but he often will be, right? And, and he's going to be very upstanding. Everyone's going to look to this guy. If you're going to make a decision as a group, you're going to ask him, what do you think? And whatever he says is probably going to be what happens. It doesn't mean that he says, do it or else. It means that in the conversation with all the other people in that area, he's kind of the leading guy. He's the ruler of their religious community, not their rabbi, though. There is a distinction. He's not their teacher, I don't think, at least. But what I want you to see him as then is somebody who's going to be caught in the middle of everything that's happening right now. These huge crowds are chasing this new prophet, right? The Pharisees from down in Jerusalem, they don't like him at all. They sent scribes. They're ripening my ear off about it. But Grandma Schmidt, she got healed the other day, right? So, so what am I supposed to do here? How do I handle this? He's saying things that sound like they're true, but they're not what everyone else has said we're supposed to believe Moses says. They don't seem to line up. And there's a whole lot of weird going on. What should I do? Oh, what's that, honey? Our daughter's running 107-degree fever? Suddenly, all the arguments about this, that, and the other thing go out the window. That guy can heal. Let's go. Right? That's who this guy is, right? Out of the crowd. Jairus. And he implored him, verse 23, he implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Uh, We're going to learn later she's 12. She's 12. uh, in, In Hebrew society, 13 is really when you come of age. Uh, you might have heard of the bar mitzvah, the bat mitzvah, and all that. Uh, it's, it's when you're kind of recognized as an adult. So here she is. I mean, she's still a little girl, but she's also on the verge of womanhood. Uh, really, any child, right, that, that you would have go through this is going to just break your heart. Um, but there's something touching about a, a little girl to, to most fathers, I think. Uh, so in any case, you, you can feel his pain, I hope. Uh, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So here's the plea, right? And, and the faith. Notice. Now, everything else, what's going on? Who knows what the Pharisees said? They said he's got a demon. I don't know. I don't know. Who, who can do this, right? So they go to him. And he went with him. Kind of a brief statement there in verse 24 at the start. Jesus goes with him. But that was our first story. There's the setup. And we're going to make a hard left now. And we got a paragraph about a completely different story. Now, this great crowd follows him. They throng about him. Uh, trying to imagine this again, uh, it's kind of like getting out of any packed gymnasium or stadium after the game. You know how people kind of leave before the ninth inning's over because they want to get out before the crowds are like thronging. <laughs> uh, uh, so they're thronging about Jesus at this point. If you can imagine again the, the intensity of all of this. Um, and uh, there was then this woman, verse 25, who has a discharge of blood. For 12 years, another 12. Um, before we go on to talk about the doctors, uh, it's, it's pretty valuable to remember that a woman is not clean during her monthly custom in Hebrew Levitical law. So this means she can't go to church. Okay? Like that's, that, she's not inside the covenant officially. 
Doesn't mean she can't have faith in Jesus, but this has separated her from her people on every level. It's not just she's sick. It's that too, <laughs> right? It's sick and, oh, by the way, we're going to kind of shun you now, or at least we can't come over. No. We might catch it. What are we going to catch? The dirty. The dirty from a woman's custom or from a disease of discharge? Well, see, they understood dirty as to be both seen and unseen, and they know there's demonic warfare going on, and their God has said, this is how you're supposed to stay away from all this stuff, Old Covenant again, Mount Sinai. They take it all very seriously. So we don't want to condemn them, even though the New Testament has given us new wineskins, right? What I just want you to see is this woman's not just trying to get healed. She's trying to come back to everything. She's like a leper. Twelve years. Twelve years. And then on top of that, you know, she's got the healthcare system, right? Uh, She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. It's probably one of the hardest things about watching my dad age and then uh, go to rest in Christ was just how many doctors they went to to try to stop it. And, uh, no, they delayed it a little bit. And God bless them. That was their decision. But, but man, it, it was exhausting to watch them. They just, they just wore themselves thin. Is it something how, how much we try to fix it? And, and sometimes the fix is worse than the problem in the first place. I was just talking with one of you. You're not, not here tonight, but someone here. To tell me about they're on this thing that they got to take, and it's got these side effects, and so they're on this other thing for the side effects. This got side effects too, right? Like, like at what point, right? And I, I don't want this to make us a tirade on on the medical industry or anything like that. That's why you see, like, it's not new. Like them selling snake oil and calling it science isn't new. King Asa, remember that guy? Very faithful until in the end of his life he gets like a foot disease. And all it says is he went to the doctors instead of to Jesus. And then he didn't get healed. It's been a long time that we've been trying to fix our bodies. And I'm not saying we can't. I'm not saying nutrition and, and medical care is not good. I'm just saying there's also a lot of it out there that's not really true. Not all of it's working. Not all of it is based upon, well, science. And here again is this woman who spent all she's had and she's lost all of it can't be healed. Then there's this bit about her little inner conviction, right? Uh, She had heard the reports about Jesus, verse 27, came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment. That's kind of weird, actually, right? Wouldn't you normally go talk to the guy? But she said in her own head, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And, And don't let the word garment throw you off. It's kind of a weird way of talking, just clothing. Just clothing. If I touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And she reached out, she touched it, 29, and immediately the flow of blood dries up. And not just that, I mean, she knows it. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Um, it, it, it's so Mark. She sneaks up behind Jesus, grabs his cloak, magically healed. It's just amazing. She knows it. And, and All because in her head, she said to herself, he is so clean that if I just get near something that's near him, his clean is going to rub off on me and make me clean. 
That's her thinking in her head about Jesus. And the thing is, she's right. She's right. Just getting near Jesus cleans you. This is why the Lord's Supper works. It's why it's a promise. It's not about you doing something enough to get it. It's when the Lord's Supper comes into you, Jesus in all of his cleanliness just enters you. Body, soul, heart, mind, all of it. How can you not rise from the dead on the last day? How can you not be justified in his sight, right? She's saying that in her head. I just need, I just need Jesus. Got to get close. Right? And then this again is what? Word and sacrament. We call it that. But you know, to hear the words of Scripture is to have the same thing right now for you. And the supper is Christ entering you. Huh? So she does this. She touches. But then it's, it's like without him knowing it. It gets weirder. Verse 30, he, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said, you're in a crowd, dude. <laughs> you know, they're pressing around you. Yeah, you say, who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. So, again, I, I don't know. The humanity of Jesus. Mark is always trying to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. So Jesus is able to know that he healed someone without knowing who he healed or maybe even how he healed them. But he can know he did it. Like that's, that's something that the God-man gets to do in his psychology, right? How do, you, how do you process that? We can't, I don't know. But what's clear again is that nothing gets by Jesus that if you say to yourself, Jesus will heal me, Jesus will heal you, even if he's not thinking about it. <laughs> and then he'll turn around and want to look at you and like tell you, yeah, I healed you. It's okay. That's what he's going to do next. He wants to find her to say that was good. She doesn't get in trouble at all, right? Uh, what happens next? Who touched me? He looks around. She, though, she thinks she's going to be in trouble. She's just like us. Yeah? Always. Oh, I must need to justify myself. I must have done something wrong. The woman, knowing what had happened to him, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus, I stole healing from you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I trusted so much in your glory that I came and I took it. Yeah. And he says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. That was the second story. First story is still going. As soon as he says this, I mean, while he was still speaking, Mark tells us, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead. Man, it's got to be some pain in that news. And I want to imagine that they were a little more careful about telling him, like, like pulling him aside and just walking the crowd and say this. But like, this is what we got. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the rabbi? Which says two things. Um, first off, there's like this pull away from Jesus. Second thing, well, she's dead. He can't fix it now. Not she's dead. Make sure the rabbi comes. Notice the unbelief in the statement. Yeah. Jesus overhears it. Verse 36. He sees he's talking to the woman. The guy's over there. He's, he's got three things going on at once. He hears them saying she's dead. He sticks his head in, says to the ruler, don't fear, only believe. Now, here I want to tangent for a second, risking our time a little tonight, but um, I want to compare 
verse 34 and verse 36 to, I don't know, uh, American preaching. So uh, Mark 5, 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed. Now, I know people preach that as Christianity is God saying, have faith. And when you do, I'll heal you. I know that. And then uh, verse 36, same thing, right? Do not fear, only believe. You only have faith, right? Even George Michael just got to have faith, faith, faith. And if you just do it, right? Um, now, you're, I think you're already probably picking up what I'm laying down here, that this idea that if you just have faith, you could have whatever you want is, is unbiblical. But before you get too ahead of yourself, I want to show you where Jesus actually says it in Mark 11, verses uh, 22 to 24, and then we can reckon with what it really should mean. But if you want to flip to Mark 11, um, verses 22, this is going to be page uh, 847. After Jesus has killed a fig tree with his words, which is its own crazy story, um, they ask how. Verse 22, he answered and said, have faith in God. That's how. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So this, this idea of have faith get healed, have faith, move mountains, have faith, and God will answer your prayers. Mark's actually saying that. The problem is not that having faith means that God is going to hear you and give answers to your prayers. The problem is thinking that thereby, now God has become a vending machine that needs my faith. I'm going to take my faith and generate it like money to put into God so that I can earn stuff. What Jesus is teaching us is to believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus is capable of all things. That he holds the heavens and the sunrise in his hand. And so, since his eye is on the sparrow, that he has his ear attuned to you. And when you ask for things that are good, truly good, he's going to give them to you. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, Jesus is not going to say no. If you ask for wisdom according to the scriptures, Jesus is not going to say no. Huh? If you ask to live forever so you can spend more time in your fleshly consumptions, Jesus might say no to that one, right? Well, because that one's not good for you. Yeah? But if you ask for more time, if you say, Jesus, can you heal me maybe so I can spend more time confessing the resurrection to the next generation? Well, would you believe it? The Psalms actually pray that. So it's okay to pray that. Huh? So can you see here, uh, the idea that Jesus is teaching is that to have faith is to move mountains, but those mountains are mountains God has declared he's going to demolish for you. And you're trusting his word at that point, and that's why they're going to collapse in front of you. It's why your enemies are going to scatter. It's why you're going to rise from the dead on the last day, because you have faith in what Jesus has promised. So what's going on back in chapter 5, again, is people are hearing Jesus proclaim, the kingdom has come, the reign of God is at hand. 
And they're believing that promise by coming to him and it's being fulfilled. So then also for you, where do you have this coming to place in your life? Well, right here, as you attend to the word of God and keep it. As I already preached about, about the Lord's Supper, hopefully as you're bringing the word of God into your mouth in day-by-day study, prayer, and dialogue, right? All of that. That is to have faith. And having that faith you can trust is going to do its work wherever it goes. That word. That word. Okay, so, again, have faith. Do not fear, only believe. End of verse 36. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Uh, Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. American funerals are generally very quiet. They're very, everyone kind of hunches over and and feels bad together quietly, and we don't really let it out. We'll pat each other on the back a little bit. Um, Ancient and and Near Eastern funerals are, are, are loud. There's Wailing and screaming and all sorts of noise making that goes on. Truly a commotion. Uh, They're grieving and letting it all out. So that's what he walks into, right? Uh, And when he enters this funeral of screaming people, okay? Funeral of screaming people. He says to them, why are you making such a commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, his comments worth paying attention to, but the next line's important too. They laughed at him. That's probably most important. They laughed at him. He comes in. He says to them, she's not dead. I know. Remember, I'm the guy you asked to come here and heal her. She's not dead. She's sleeping. They laugh. They scoff. They mock. This is a pattern at this point, is it not? It's going to grow the conflict and the violence against Jesus. That said, what did he say? She's not dead. She's sleeping. Huh? That is the New Testament reality. Jesus isn't just saying something that's sort of different, or he's not being metaphorical. Oh, well, what he's saying is because I am here now, death has changed. Because I am the Son of God who has taken on man's flesh, death has become a sleep from which I have the power to awaken people. And then what does he do next? He does it, right? Um, uh, they laugh. He put the, other, the others outside, took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So the other shift here that I want to call your attention to is how Jesus doesn't ask for this miracle. Jesus doesn't pray at this moment. Jesus goes straight into death itself again and acts as though he has power over it, demonstrates that he does. So he has got nothing in his way. He has elevated his miracle level from healing diseases, opening up guys' hands that have been crunched, making paralytics walk. Now it's a whole nother level with the resurrection of someone from the dead. He then strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. That telling them no one should know this, this is that mark in secret idea that Jesus is continually saying, don't tell anybody. But I liked a little bit about him saying, give her something to eat. 
You also see the humanity of Jesus in all of this. I mean, I, maybe dying from a horrible fever and then being raised from the dead, it, it takes it out of you, you know? And so, so he's, he's concerned, you know, make sure she's got some food, keep her hydrated. And he sounds like a good physician, right? I love that part. That's, that's the Mark thing. He's always giving you those little zingers about his humanity. All right. So end of the second story. What's it all about? Those who come to Jesus, knowing he has promised to be healing for them, receive that healing. Does that mean you should expect him to heal your cancer this year? No, not necessarily. But I'll tell you, you should definitely expect him to heal your soul. There should be no question in your mind that Jesus is going to create a peace of conscience in your heart. He's going to give you a trust and confidence in God as your father. You're going to know that God is for you and not against you, that he loves you and does not despise you, that he wants to silence all of your enemies and the accuser, the devil, and that all of this is going to be what he does for you because he's promised it already in the death of Jesus Christ, buying you back, right? That is what it means then to have faith, yes, to trust that Jesus will heal you. Because the real healing is your soul to know who he, your God, is. So what doesn't happen when he goes home? Right? Five minutes here, last couple of verses. He went away from there, came to his hometown. Disciples follow. This is Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? There's a list of four different complaints here. Where did he get it? What's this wisdom? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And don't we know this guy? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon are not his sisters with this. They took offense. Uh, Scandalizo, I believe is the Greek. They're scandalized. They're they're bothered by him. They can't stand him. Again, he, he comes to his home church, you know, and he just kind of participates in the synagogue and doesn't say he said anything bad. Uh, but they're just—they're actually just upset that he's talking at all. Who? This is this is the prophet. Everyone's so excited about the. This is Jesus. I used to throw rocks at him. You know who's this guy? You know they, they don't like him at all. And and Jesus has, says to them this proverb: A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Which is its own worthwhile ponder, but I want to go past it for a moment here to verse 5. He could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So, again, now, he could do no works there? Like, this is the Almighty Son of God who is incarnate, you know, walking around, like casting out legions of demons and People touch him and he, he heals them without knowing it, but he gets to Nazareth and he can't, he can't do anything? That's what it says, he can't do anything. Well, why, could he, why could he not do anything? I think the answer is verse 6. He's too busy just being like absolutely surprised at, at how unbelieving they are. He's shocked. He's, he's shocked. I mean, again, how does Jesus get shocked, right? He's supposed to know everything. Well, he veils himself. He veils his Godhead in humanity so he can experience the fullness of humanity. And Mark's going to make sure you see it. 
So he comes to his hometown and, and they're so rude to him. He's just like, I don't even know what to say to you. I mean, she just, you hear what she just said to me? I can't believe that. I was, and I thought she was going to ask for healing, but she like yelled at me instead and told me that my dad was a jerk, right? Like whatever it was that was going on, he, he cannot get to the point where he feeds faith with miracles. I almost spelled it. Uh, where he feeds faith with miracles. Um, and so it's not as though Jesus was disempowered but it's kind of like, you know, if, you're, if your kid comes and says, I have the car, you say, why? And they say, I'm going to go take grandma out for lunch and then make sure grandpa is okay. You're going to say, sure. And they say, if they say, instead, I'm going to go out all night drinking and partying, uh, never come back and probably crash it. You're, you're not going to give them the key to the car, right? Uh, so in the same way, uh, Jesus is not going to give healing to people who are rank unbelievers. He's just not going to do it. It's not going to be good for them. They're going to, it's going to hurt them, actually. He doesn't want that. Right? Um, but, but for those who are coming asking for it because they, they really do desire it, he's, he gives it to them. They didn't want it. They didn't want it. And so, again, uh, up to this point in the book, people have been marveling. That word in, in verse, uh, verse 6 there, marveled, that's been what everybody else has been doing about Jesus up to this point. They've been marveling at Jesus. And now in Nazareth, Jesus marvels. Again, he, he just, I just don't get it. How could they really be that unbelieving? Including, don't miss, we saw this just uh, Sunday, I think, and then last Wednesday, his family, who has gone from being his family, who's coming to take hold of him, to your mother and your brothers are here, they want to take you home, to now you're back home, and oh yeah, we know you and these guys, Judas and James, Joseph and Simon. Judas and James, by the way, write books. James and Jude are by, by those two guys, both of them converting probably after the resurrection. Uh, so they're locked in here too to show that in a weird way, everybody that should be for Jesus is against him. Everybody that should be for him is against him. So again, a prophet's not with that honor and it's except in his own hometown. Um, I will say just a brief, brief, real fast bit about that. Um, all I know is this. If I, as a pastor in the Missouri Synod, walk into almost any Missouri Synod congregation in the Synod, and I walked into their council meeting, and I sat down and just listened and participated, I would, without question, be given more respect. Everything I said, the authority of my voice, my words, my opinions would carry more weight than their pastor. If I came in and did it in a big Bible study and the pastor brought me in to do it, I could forward things that would take him four to five years to do. I'd get them in, through in a, in a weekend. They do that on purpose. They hire guys to come in and do this because a prophet's without honor in his hometown. And for whatever reason, uh, you get used to the pastor and he stops having the same authority. I don't know that that's the bad part entirely, but just be aware of how, how the tendency is to believe the prophet from far away. There is a tendency there. It's, it's, it's not all good. Right. There's some good, too. It's really a good thing that when a Missouri Synod pastor visits a Missouri Synod congregation, they're like, hi, pastor. And then they treat you with respect. Like That's a good thing, right? Um, and yet it's not a good thing when the prophet is not heard because you think, I know that guy. Right. This is where they warned us at the seminary, don't get too close to the people. You know, you'll, you'll be a friend of somebody and you have to call them to repentance and then it won't work. Right. How, how does that work out when you're comfortable with your pastor? 
And that's sort of what's going on in that proverb a little bit. That brings us to the end of our verse. Uh, again, uh, he went about among the villages teaching, and we are definitely through our time here. Uh, we'll continue on Sunday with the sending out of the 12. In the name of Jesus, amen.